Coming up on episode nine of the Keto Cam podcast, we have a leader in the space of advanced metabolic nutrition, Dr. Don Klum. When you're out there and you're in the medical world, they will tell you that diabetes is a progressive degenerative disease, that it cannot be reversed. It progresses and gets worse and worse and worse. All you can hope to do is manage it. And that's 100% true if you're treating the symptom. That's 100% true in their model, right? If you use their model, it would not get better. It'll only get worse. Whereas if you shift to a different model, a different lifestyle-based model, the insulin-friendly lifestyle, the insulin-based model, then you have an opportunity to reverse that. You have an opportunity to change that outcome. You have an opportunity to take them off that path. I'm a certified functional health practitioner who's on a mission to educate 1 billion people. I've been obese for most of my life. From rock bottom to the top of the mountain, I am passionate about studying ancient healing strategies like fasting and the ketogenic diet and curating this information on the Keto Camp podcast. My goal is to bring you the thought leaders in this space. My name is Ben Azadi, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. I'm excited to share Dr. Don Klum with you, who is a brilliant doctor in the, the world of uh, health and fat loss and weight loss and hormones. I call him the king of insulin. He really understands the insulin-based model versus the American Diabetes Association of uh, Diabetes Prevention Program. So we talk about, we compare, and we break down why we have this epidemic of diabetes, why it's treated the wrong way, and what to do about it if you have it, to prevent it, and all things diabetes, type 2 diabetes. We talk about the role of insulin in weight loss and diabetes. According to Dr. Don Klum, weight loss in itself is pointless. And he's gonna explain what he means by that. We talk about calories in versus calories out, and does that even work? What's actually more important? So we talk a lot about insulin in this episode. Insulin is that fat storage hormone. It's not the bad guy unless it's cold all the time. And we talk about that. We go deep into that. We also talk about Dr. Klum's 30-day fast and what happened, what did he experience, hunger, cravings, how much weight did he lose? And he shared a story about him working out extreme, working out uh, intensely during this fast and what he learned from it. So you can learn from his mistakes. We talk about the skin being a metabolic organ. And I don't know if you knew this, but he said his research showed that the skin makes 50% of men's testosterone. And he gives many more stats like that. It's going to blow your mind. We talk about vitamin D being an indicator in detecting insulin resistance and how insulin is high, vitamin D is low. Typically, that's the way it works. We talk about the negative connotations in fasting, muscle wasting, not being able to get through it, and so much more. So without further ado, I'm going to welcome Dr. Don Klum to the Keto Camp Podcast. Oh, and before I do, I want to let you know that this episode is sponsored by Purity Coffee, the world's best keto coffee beans. I get mine delivered every single month. I'm actually drinking mine right now, and I want you to get these beans because coffee is the most sprayed crop in the world. I don't know if you knew that. Most coffee is toxic. It's causing leaky guts, wrecking the digestive system. These coffee beans are organic and they have the highest amount of antioxidants more than any other bean I've come across. So if you want to get your bag of purity coffee beans, go to www.ketocampcoffee.com to claim it. And also, if you have not rated or reviewed this show, make sure you do so. It really helps out. So let's get into this episode with Dr. Don Klum. Dr. Don Klum graduated from Life University in Marietta, Georgia in 1997 with a degree in human nutrition. He then moved to Life Chiropractic College West in California, where he graduated with his doctorate in chiropractic in 2000. After graduation, Dr. Klum moved to San Jose, Costa Rica, where he was invited to work with the Costa Rican Olympic Committee and athletes in improving their health and performance through designing their peak performance program and chiropractic care. 
Dr. Klump participated in the National, Central American, and Caribbean and Central American Games as the team chiropractor for the country's most elite athletes through the Olympic Committee and as the official chiropractor for the two professional soccer teams. As a frequent guest on the national television show and radio, Dr. Klum was influential in bringing the gift of chiropractic care to the people of Central America. He focused heavily on reaching out to the underserved people of the rural areas surrounding the capital city. He is sought after as a speaker and is, has a, presented to various professional sports teams, universities, medical groups, businesses, and government agencies. Dr. Don Klum was instrumental in bringing together the local chiropractors to form the first board recognizing chiropractic as licensed and legal healing art in Costa Rica. Pretty cool. After eight years in Costa Rica, Dr. Klum traveled to Casta, Castilla La Mancha in Spain, where he practiced and did two years of consulting. He returned to the U.S. in 2010 and was astonished by the state of health here in his home country. His 15-plus years of experience combined with advanced studies in human nutrition and population health have allowed him to hit the ground running here as a leading expert on such devastating conditions such as metabolic syndrome, obesity, fibromyalgia, Lyme disease, rheumatoid arthritis, heart disease, and more. Dr. Klum is fully bilingual, speaking Spanish as well as English, and he enjoys spending time with his family and three wonderful children. He is an avid sports and exercise enthusiast and participates greatly in community events. Welcome to the Keto Camp Podcast. I'm here with Dr. Klum. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much, Doc. Good, great to be here. Yeah, it's, I'm happy to be here with you. So I want to know, first and foremost, before we get into the nitty gritty and talk about insulin, which I believe you are the king of insulin, before we get into that, I want to hear your story growing up. How did you get into the health space? Well, health kind of ran in my family. Health, At least healthcare did. I come from a family of chiropractors. My dad's a chiropractor, my uncle, my aunt, my cousin, my sister, my wife, myself, my daughter's in school right now on her way to become a chiropractor. So it's kind of been, I kind of grew up in this world, so to speak. Yeah. So you had it all around you. So you kind of, uh, as you were growing up, you were learning from your aunts, from your dad, from your mom. And what, what was it? At what age did you say, I want to be a chiropractor? It wasn't until I graduated high school, actually. I, I didn't want to be a chiropractor for a long time because you know, following my dad around, he's a big name in the field, and uh, all his friends would say, when are you going to school? When are you going to be a chiropractor? Are you going to be a chiropractor? I think it burnt me out, and I didn't want to go. And then when I graduated high school, I wasn't really doing a whole lot. I was working at Lazy Boy. I was a guy who carried out the, ch the sofas and chairs when people came in and just kind of you know, summer job type of thing. And my dad said, Hey, come with me to a, this DE seminar, which I've been to before many times. It's a family event and listen to the speakers and, you know, see what you think. And so I said, I don't want to go. I'm too old for the kids events. I can't go to the theme parks and do all that kind of stuff. I, you know, what would I do is say, listen, I'll give you 25 bucks for every speaker that you listen to. And they have a lot of speakers. So I quickly did the math the best I could. And I decided I would go. And I went and I sat through every speaker. And then what really got me is I went to the student night. The student night was on Friday nights after the last speaker. And it was totally run by students. Everything was off. We used the stage. And the whole nine yards called Student DE. And that, that got me right there. The student energy, the different stories they were telling, everything about it hooked me. In the next quarter, I was down in Atlanta, Georgia, starting prereqs. Uh, to start my path in chiropractic and I ended up getting my bachelor's in nutrition there and then I went to Life West in California to do my chiropractic program. Wow so if all else fails bribe your children and it might work. Yes if you want your kids in that realm especially if they're second generation and you're a chiropractor bring them to the seminars go to a philosophy seminar something that they can get a little bit out of not necessarily a, a maybe a technique or a science-based seminar because I can burn them out. We've done that too. But to one of the, the bigger ones that, that there's a lot of people, other people bring their kids and they hang around the other kids. They get motivated. And my kids, whenever they go to that, they would leave saying, I'm going to be a chiropractor. How long that lasted uh, depends on the kid and how much motivation they have. But that was a, that's been a big influence of why my daughter decided to be a chiropractor. And she's in school right now doing nutrition first. She'll actually do a nutrition degree in in a bachelor's in nutrition. She'll do a master's in positive psychology and then the doctorate in chiropractic. That's her plan. We'll see how it goes. Oh, that's awesome. So now it's running in your family right now and it's tradition is continuing and that's really cool. So what is it that sparked your desire during that seminar? What was it that the next week you decided to go into chiropractor school? What was it? 
it was just the, it was the student energy. They were all so excited. They, they, we, were, we were up to like one in the morning. People were just, this is open stage kind of concept. People were talking, they're motivated. They were, they wanted to change the world. They just, they just loved everything about what they were doing. And it was just, it was amazing to me. And so I, I just got caught up in it and I'm like, whatever that is, I want it. And so that's what happened. Very cool. So that's a good tip for anybody who wants their children to be involved in this type of field. Send them to seminars, have them experience this in person, and they could feel that energy. And uh, that's really, really awesome. So growing up in this household, did your father have you do some weird, healthy things that you thought were weird that you're actually teaching right now? Not necessarily. I mean, we grew up without vaccines. That was kind of weird. That set us apart. We had to do some different dances around that. And so we knew that was different. I got adjusted all the time. That was different. And we everything was centered around, he was the president of, the, of Life Chiropractic College West. So everything was centered around the college, college events, students, seminars, and things like that. So that was a little bit different. Our family vacations were going to seminars and not uh, not Disneyland or anything like that. So that's, that's a bit different. But other than that, not a whole lot. I mean, now looking back, we had a pretty healthy up bringing and we didn't take medications like a lot of people did. I mean, we didn't even have aspirins in, in the house. So that was a little bit different. But other than that, not a whole lot. They kind of, you know, were their hands off with, with a lot of it. And, and whatever they did worked because myself and my sister are both chiropractors. And my other sister works at Life Chiropractic College West as well. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. So you went from not having any interest in being a chiropractor to getting fully involved. You've created quite the legacy and you actually brought chiropractic care to Costa Rica. Is that correct? Well, not necessarily. I went, we went to Costa Rica. We lived there for eight years. Uh, chiropractic was already there. Very small numbers, people doing different things. It was actually Dr. Sean Dill who paid the money, did the research, got the law written for chiropractic to be a legal uh, healing art down there, to be a, a doctorate level profession. He eventually left and it was a long process. And then it was another group of people. I was part of the original board that actually implemented that law. So thanks to him, we got it written. And then it was another group of people who actually did the footwork to start it and start the board, the first legal board and get that going. So that's how it works. So I was part of the beginning of starting it. I have to give the credit to Sean Dill for getting that law written and passed. Yeah, and I acknowledge you for giving him the credit. I didn't know that story. That's that's really cool. But you you played a role in it, and that's really cool because you went from being that teenager who didn't really want to do anything to playing a big role. And you lived in Costa Rica for six years, you said? Eight years. We were there for eight years. We started one year working with Life University. We were working with the Costa Rican uh, Olympic Committee and the uh, University of Costa Rica Medical School and implementing some of the uh, WHO standards in the rural areas and working with the athletes. And we were the peak performance chiropractors or or doctors for Central American Games, the Pan American Games, the Caribbean Games, and and would have been the Olympic Games if they had anyone that went, but at that time they didn't uh, and so forth. But it it was a fantastic experience. It lasted about a year. Year. We, we uh, after the program was over, we stayed and we helped with the Olympic Committee, and then we stayed for another seven years. We had seven practices at different times, and just uh, raised. You know, had a, my daughter was just under one year old when we got there. My son, my first son, was born there. Raised small kids in that area, and it was just it was just fantastic. And then after that, we went to Spain for a couple of years, where my third kid was born, my, my second son, and we worked there for a couple of years, had a great time, and then decided based on some, some different uh, reasons for kids' education and so forth, we wanted to come back to the States, came back to Florida, quickly went to, left Florida and went to New York for uh, about four years, and then we moved to Seattle, where we are now, and we've been here about five going on six years right now, and that's where we are. Yeah, awesome, and I know I, I've heard it might be even more based off of when I listened to your interview, but you said that you've been to 30 countries. Is that right? No, I've been to 42 now. 42 now. Okay. So out of the 42 countries you've visited, what's your favorite? What's what's your number one that you want to go to all the time? I love them all. I don't want to go back to any of them. I want to go to more. You know, I, I, I want to get, I want to increase that number. I want to get going. I was just thinking about that today. Oh, I'd love to go to South Africa and trek all the way up to Kenya and do something like that. I backpacked when I was younger and, and we traveled a lot. My kids before they were 10 years old were, had been to eight countries and lived in th- uh, three. So, you know, hopefully that, that rubs off and, and they get some of that culture and that experience. And just, I just love it. I could do it. If I could do it more, I would. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So you want to do more countries. You're not focused on the ones you've been to. I think that's great. And that sounds like an amazing trip. If you do that, that would be a great trip to document. Okay. 
So at what point in your career did you start getting into diabetes when you started getting into the insulin, which is, I want to really talk about insulin on this call because I feel like you have so much knowledge in this area, in this space of hormones and specifically insulin. And you talk about how we have several fat burning hormones. So there's at least eight, but only one fat storage hormone. So could you piggyback off of that and explain some more? Well, to get into how I got into this, we'd have to go back to Costa Rica. When I was there, we had straight chiropractic offices. I did chiropractic uh, upper cervical, knee chest, old BJ Palmer style. I was very green book centered chiropractic. It's all we did. But when I was there, I developed some health issues. I went to a medical doctor. I developed a rash and I want to know if it's contagious, if I can go to practice and stuff. And I went and the rash was fine. It was something I had eaten. But the dermatologist said, hey, you got to put that mole on your neck that's cancer. You have skin cancer right there. And I, you know, I took a step back. It's not even why I was there. I knew it was kind of ugly. Sometimes I have a lot of moles. Sometimes they, they change and they do some weird stuff. And I was like, oh, okay. And then, uh, you know, I started to a process on my own. I never got it biopsied. I didn't go back until six months later just to have it checked and it was no longer there. So I don't know if it was cancer. I call it a skin lesion because I really just don't know. And it happened a second time. I had a medical doctor on my staff and about two or three years I guess this one happened first, two years prior at Christmas is summertime there. So we were at a pool party for Christmas and he said, Hey doc, you got to come into my office on Monday morning and we got to talk. And I was like, Oh great. You know, I thought he was going to quit on me. It wasn't that I apparently had a mole on my back, which I can't see that was, you know, atypical. And he checked it out and he said the same thing. He's like, that's skin cancer. You got to blah, 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 blah. And I said, okay, thank you very much. And in both cases, what I did is I just doubled down on what I already was doing. I th first of all, I was really set back because I grew up in a healthy lifestyle. I've never had a prescription drug. You know, I do all the things, I, I, especially learning from nutrition school and living in Costa Rica, we, we ate an organic, natural, fruit and nut, earthy life. And I'm like, if this is happening to me, well, imagine what this, what's going on to every, everyone else. And first, I want to know why. And that got me really digging in. And as I was learning about these different processes, I started doing different things. And I eventually backwards kind of stumbled onto fasting. And I just started, I needed, I knew I always wanted to lose weight. I wanted to lean down. I wanted to do this. So I started changing my diet. I went vegetarian, then I went fruitarian. Then eventually I went to fat, just plain fasting. I dropped down a bunch of weight and eventually those lesions, they kind of got, they got uglier and they came to the surface and they fell off. The mole, I, this one is still there, but the lesion is not even a scar for this one. And on my back, the mole that went bad isn't there and there is a little bit of a scar. So, you know, it happened in both cases. And so that's, that got me really thinking outside the box. I got outside of the chiropractic only concept and I'm like, Hey, I had a degree in nutrition. So I had some background. What's up? And I started learning more about lifestyle and we started incorporating more. We got into things like healthy oils. We got into high fat concepts. We got into fasting, but not, not formally, just kind of casually. It wasn't until I came back from Spain to the United States when I really d dove into it because we came back after 10 years of being out of, the, out of the States and I saw the condition of the country and it blew me away in just 10 years. Whether it's my awareness or it changed that much, I don't know. But the, the weight issues, I would go to kids events and they'd be sitting around and, and the kids were so heavy. And then I'd go to PTA events and, and see the parents and I'm like, yeah, I see the trend going on here. And so we started to get into that. We, had, we opened a wellness center at that point. We had a gym in there. We had a holistic psychologist. We had a massage therapist. I did the nutrition part. My wife and I both did chiropractic. We tried to incorporate it all together. And we had great success. And one of the things we had great success with was diabetes. And so we had this program that uh, we knew worked and we knew we liked up or then incorporated and we had great success with diabetes. And a friend of mine noticed that too. And this is where it all started to shift. A friend of mine started, which is Dr. Darren White. He's here in uh, Redmond, Seattle area. And he had started a screening company, a spinal screening company to go into businesses, screen people, and then bring them into their office. Eventually that came a, a biometric company where you did cholesterol and measurements and stuff like that. And eventually that grew now over 15, now 16 years into a population health company where they have over one and a half million people who are part of this. I think it's 250 companies that employ them and they do biometrics and they do lifestyle programs uh, online. Basically, people fill out a psychometric questionnaire. You get like a rating and based on your rating, they recommend things for you to do. 
like go on a walking challenge or drinking water challenge, you know, get these water, uh, go a meditation, you know, celebrate silence. There's all these different concepts. There's weight loss. There's other things. And when you, when they did that, they got points and when they got points, their, their insurance payment went down or they got some, some prizes and some swag. And so that, that's the model. And so he has this company and he sees the success we're having in the wellness program. He says, Hey, do you think you can do what you're doing one-on-one to one-on-many in like a population-based concept? I said, I don't know. He said, do you want to try? I said, sure. And that got us to Washington. My wife bought uh, one of his old practices and she stayed in, in practice. And I went to work in population health where I helped with the content for the weight loss programs the metabolic syndrome programs, fast fitness, mood and food, uh, the stress concepts, you, you know, they had a whole bunch of different things. But my, my big one was uh, I created a diabetes prevention program. And we created that to, and it's, it was directly opposing the national diabetes prevention program. And there's no other opposing programs out there. So it was a big thing because that, that's been used in states wide all over the place. It's got big numbers. It's been around for 30 years. And here we are creating this model that's different. And because it was different, I had to cover our rear ends. I had to research this stuff and I had to explain why it was different. Because when I went to these big companies could have 100,000 employees. They have full medical boards with MDs, PhDs, nutritionists, dietetics sitting there right there just hammering me. And if I didn't have everything down, nailed down, if I didn't you know, preempt and predict what was going on, and if I wasn't prepared, they just kicked me right out. I had to learn new terminology. I had to learn new ways of explaining it. I had to learn the science. I had to have the hundreds to thousands of studies ready to, to validate what we did. So that made me really dive into the physiology and get really deep in it. And that's where the technicality came in. And then I found it fascinating. There's a lot of things I didn't know. There's a lot of things that are old concepts, dogmatic in medicine that we learned in, even in chiropractic school. And I, I just thought it was fascinating that it really didn't work like that. And if you look at it through this lens, the whole landscape changed especially with diabetes. If you, do, if you look at, there's two lenses in my mind. There's a traditional blood sugar lens, and then there's the insulin lens. One's red and one's blue, you know? And you close one eye, they look completely different through those different lenses. And when the, when the landscape changes, so do your actions, so do your expectations, and so do your outcomes. And so we, we implemented this with thousands, and now it's been exposed to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. And we got great results. We were beating the national program's results. National programs, all they could ever show was a reduction in weight. We showed a reduction in weight. We showed an improvement in cholesterol, in triglycerides, in blood sugar, in waist circumference, everything. It was a true metabolic shift that has not been seen in the landscape. And it was fantastic. And so that's where that deeper dive effort came from. Is that, is that a necessity? It was out of protecting myself because I got kicked in the teeth a number of times before we figured out how to approach this and what we needed to have ready every time we walked into those doors. Wow. Yeah. You know, you're one of the pioneers for somebody like myself who's younger in the health space, who I have a passion for diabetes as well. And you've taken a lot of the arrows, not just for me, but for thousands and millions of future health coaches and doctors out there because You'd studied, you've done the research, you've taken those arrows, you got kicked in the teeth, and you just kept going. So I want to thank you for that, because without your work, I wouldn't be able to do a lot of things that I'm doing right now. So I really thank you for that, Don. And I want to know, and I want the audience to understand, because I'm sure there's going to be people listening to this, and they're thinking, what does he mean it directly opposes the ADA, the American Diabetes Association, or these government guidelines, or what my doctor's telling me. What's the difference between having high blood sugar, having high insulin levels? Could you, could you compare and contrast that? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I came from the old model, because in the beginning in practice, when I'm just getting started, I, I reached out to what was out there. I taught the National Diabetes Prevention Programs model at the YMCA's. That's where they, the biggest numbers come from, the YMCA's. I helped teach those. I learned that model first, and I had a, an RD. I had a CDE, which is a RDE is registered dietitian. CDE is certified diabetes educator. I had those degrees and credentials, and, and that's all in the very traditional model, right? And the, but as we were going, as we were trying different things, we realized it didn't work. You see the outcomes. When you look at the 25-year outcomes of the National Diabetes Prevention Program, which is based on low-calorie, low-fat, 
multiple meals and snacks a day and increasing physical activity, not necessarily exercise, but physical activity. What they showed, they did not prevent diabetes. They only postponed it by three and a half years. And the control groups actually got diabetes less often than the people who went through the program. That means they had two pre-diabetic groups. They said, okay, you're going to go through the program and you're not. So these people actually got diabetes who went through the prevention program at a higher rate than the people who didn't go and do anything at all. That blew my mind. I was like, whoa, that shows that this model, this traditional low calorie, low fat, multiple meals and snacks a day because of how it impacts blood sugar was actually making people worse and, get, and they're getting the same outcomes, if not worse, than people who did, did nothing. And so I had to t take a step back and think, whoa, what are we doing? So we actually looked at insulin. What ends up happening is you, you start to notice that the problem isn't the blood sugar. The blood sugar is the symptom. The blood sugar is the effect, the change in blood sugar, the rise, we can't bring it down and so on. And what they do is they try to treat that. So they do the low-fat, low-cal, multiple meals and snacks a day, and the physical activity, and that'll help regulate blood sugar. It might not bring it down that much uh, in most people, but it will regulate. You won't get the high spikes and you won't get the low spikes. And, th and that was enough for them to say, this is better. That's arguable. I don't know. But when you, when you look at insulin, you notice insulin there then becomes the cause. If the blood sugar was the effect or the symptom, the insulin problem of regulating insulin and how it's secreted and how it is exposed in the body, that's what causes the blood sugar. So now if we look at insulin, everything starts to change. Now, low fat, low cal doesn't make sense. Because that can, especially with the multiple meals and snacks a day, because what it does is drives up insulin every time we eat. So it's keeping insulin high every day, over a day, growing, 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 even if blood sugar is normal. And so the diabetes scale or spectrum continues even at normal blood sugar. So that what it creates is this crazy contradiction in our, in our medical culture that you can have type 2 diabetes with normal blood sugar. You can have a type 2 diabetic who you bring their blood sugar down to normal, and they're still diabetic. What happens is they get their blood sugar under control. They force it, whether it's through medications or through natural things or what have you. Yet, all the negative progression of, of the effects continue. They still put on the weight. They still get worse. They still uh, have the retinopathy. They still have the neuropathy. They still have all the problems. They still die early. They lose 12 and a half to 14.2% of their life but they think they're okay because their blood sugar is managed, right? Big, big problem. Whereas if you don't ignore blood sugar, but if you shift your, foot, your main focus over to insulin and get that under control, you become more insulin sensitive, you decrease your exposure and your spikes, then all those negative side effects or effects of, of type 2 diabetes don't happen. The, the weight doesn't go on. They start to lose weight. They lose body weight. They lose visceral fat. They lose organ fat. And that's the key, not just the body fat, the, the visceral fat. Because in reality, insulin controls all that, including blood sugar. You can't affect insulin just by slamming blood sugar. But you can change blood sugar if you regulate insulin. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. It's a, a cause and effect. You know, most of the people out there, they're treating a symptom, the effect, and never getting to the cause. And insulin is the cause. It's kind of like that analogy of listening to loud music over and over and over. You become deaf to the music. Same thing with our pancreas and insulin. We, it's becoming too um, desensitized. So we want to reduce the volume slowly and become more sensitive, get the hearing back. Is that a, a good analogy? Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, that, that'll work. There's a lot of different analogies. Sometimes we oversimplify with analogies, but sometimes we can overcomplicate as well. And I don't, I, I tend to do that. So I'd rather, I like to say the simple. So what you shared was really relevant to me because I actually, I lost my father to the complications of type 2 diabetes about six years ago. And I did everything the doctors told me to do. You know, take, I took him grocery shopping each week. I filled his medication. He eventually went on insulin. And although his blood sugars were getting better, from time to time, he was getting worse. And he ended up suffering a massive stroke and it just, it took his life. And 
I've been searching on what happened to him, what's happening to America. And I came to, this, to the similar conclusion as you. You know, we, they were treating the effect. They were treating a symptom, never addressing the root cause. And they never told me that it can be potentially reversed, that there is a root cause. It's, it's insulin that's the problem. They told me it was a blood sugar issue. And I blindlessly followed. And that was a mistake that I made. And I lost my father because of it. And I know that the information that I have learned from you, Don, the information that I share and I, and I learned from other doctors, is the same information that would have saved my father's life. So the point of me sharing that is anybody listening to this right now, if you have a loved one or a family member, or maybe it's you who's in a situation where you're being treated with medication and you're, you're getting treated, they're treating your symptoms, know that there is a cause and an effect. And once you get to the cause, remove the interference, the body will heal itself. And that's what Don does. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. And this also goes to my next question. Well, hold on one second. There's one more, one more part of that. When you're out there and you're in the medical world, they will tell you that diabetes is a progressive degenerative disease, that it cannot be reversed it progresses and gets worse and worse and worse. All you can hope to do is manage it. And that's 100% true if you're treating the symptom. That's 100% true in their model, right? If you use their model, it would not get better. It'll only get worse. Whereas if you shift to a different model, a different lifestyle-based model, the insulin-friendly lifestyle, the insulin-based model, then you have an opportunity to reverse that. You have an opportunity to change that outcome. You have an opportunity to take them off that path because it's not just type 2 diabetes. Insulin, it creates heart disease. Heart disease is a cardiometabolic issue based on insulin. Dementia, Alzheimer's, cancer, they're all metabolic issues and they have a lot to do with insulin as well. So it's not just diabetes, that whole spectrum of ill health, including weight and weight gain. It's all, insulin regulates weight. You mentioned the fat burning and, and the fat storing hormones. There's tons of hormones that burn fat, eight big ones that we can name that people know. There's probably even more, but there's only one that stops fat burning and causes fat storage, and that's insulin right there. So it's all interrelated. So it's very important to know that in their model, they're right. It is a degenerative disease that will not change. But in our model, it has the opportunity to change and get better. Yeah, valid point. You, so you, you've been quoted as saying, and I have some quotes here, weight loss in itself is pointless. Can you uh, explain what you mean by that? Yeah, well, here's the deal. I speak to practitioners, doctors, medical doctors, chiropractors, nutritionists, and I ask this question all the time. You have a type 2 diabetic. How much weight does that type 2 diabetic have to lose in order to reverse that diabetes to go back to normal? And I'll get all sorts of answers. I'll get some people will say 20 pounds. Some people will say 10% of the body weight. Some people will say, you know, it's, it's, it's all over the place. The reality is all they have to lose is one gram of fat one gram of fat and they all kind of get quiet but that gram of fat has to come out of their pancreas that pancreas is only a 70 to 90 gram organ it's very small but that one gram messes up the whole mechanism and causes a dysfunction so if you that type 2 diabetic they could be 250 pounds all they have to lose is one gram of fat and they won't be diabetic anymore so they, if they lose that gram, independent of body weight loss, they can reverse the metabolic issue. Now, will they continue down the health continuum and, and improve if they lose the more body weight? Yeah, they will. But in this realm, metabolically speaking, it's not the body fat that's doing the damage. It's the organ fat, liver mainly, and pancreas. Yeah, I love that. When I first heard that, I was uh, also surprised and also it makes so much sense. So- there's two different camps out there. There's the one camp in the nutrition space, the health and nutrition space that says, hey, if you want to lose weight, you want to get healthy, all you got to do is cut your calories and exercise more. It's a, you know, it's, a, it's a law of thermodynamics. That's one side. Then we have another side who says, hey, it's much more complex than that. There's hormones at play. And this is what you say. Calories do not drive the metabolism hormones do. So it's clear what, what side you're on. And I would love for you to expand upon that because there's a lot of confusion and misconceptions between these two models. And I'd love for you to break it down so eloquently. Yeah, I'll do my best. This is a conversation that makes people's heads spin on both sides. And I get a lot of pushback on this. The calories in, calories out. How much you eat versus, you know, and, and your body weight and this dysfunction. It's not a good model. 
at all. It's not about the calories. It's almost independent of the calories that these problems are created. It has to do with hormones. They've done especially in the 60s and 70s, they've done tons of studies on, on caloric intake. If you take this many calories a day over your number, you should gain this much weight. It never worked out. It was never predictably done. Some people did, some people didn't, some people lost weight. Same thing. If you cut this much calories out of your diet over this much time, you'll have a calorie deficit. You should lose this much weight. Again, never predictable. It was, it was random what happened. Some people lost weight, some people didn't, some people gained weight. It was really, it's really unpredictable. It's really makes people's head spin, right? As far as that goes. But the reality is it's not the calories or the amount of food that drives this. It's the hormonal response. Remember, it's insulin that makes you store body fat. Now you can eat, you know, they were feeding people up to 10,000 calories a day and they weren't gaining weight because it, it doesn't stimulate insulin. It depends on the food they eat. Right, but you, I could make someone on a diet who's eating only fifteen hundred calories or eating five hundred calories less than they should, and I can still make them fat. All I have to do is inject them with insulin. Same food, same diet, same exercise, everything the same. Even in a calorie deficit, you inject them with insulin, they will put on body fat. It's just an amazing thing, you know. Is it, insulin is anabolic for fat. People say that all the time, well, you know, the gym rats, I like, I need insulin, I need the carbs so I get the anabolic effect. It's anabolic for fat. It's like testosterone. Testosterone is anabolic for muscle. You inject testosterone and your bones don't get bigger, right? You ingest testosterone and you don't get more body fat. It's, these hormones are, are tissue specific for their effects. And so the calories in, calories out, do, do calories have a role? Yeah, but they're extremely hard to predict. Even on a, reading a label, it can be up to 20% off all the time. What time of day affects how much you burn? Your gut bacteria determine how much glucose goes into your system. It could be three to four times more based on your balance in your gut, based on what you're eating. We are not a closed system. The law of thermodynamics is for a closed system, and we're not. We are an open, dynamic, changing system, constantly, highly influenced by a lot of different things. And it just doesn't apply in the same way. Right, it just doesn't apply in the same way. Now, people argue; they love to say that you can't change the law. You know, it's not apples to apples. Okay, and so that—that's the big thing with calories. It just doesn't, just doesn't do it. That's why people in my programs, I get people who are metabolically dysfunctional. They got problems. They got pre-diabetic, diabetic, overweight, metabolic syndrome. You name it. And, and most of the time, in the beginning, they're already done every single diet. They're already eating less than they should. Right. The first thing I do is get them to eat more. And it blows their mind. They're like, I, I can't do that. No, first thing we do is get you to eat more, get you to eat regularly at different times and, and we'll time it out. But they have to eat more to get their metabolism at a certain point. So then when we eat less periodically or rotationally through different kinds of fasting, you, you actually have an effect on that, right? So that's, that's my take on it. Yeah, yeah, right on. It's, it's just much more complex than a simple calories in, calories out method. Uh, the, the human body is not a closed system, as you mentioned. So I love that answer. Thank you for, for saying that. So you, you mentioned early on that we have people in America, uh, we're talking about America here, that are, and this is what you said. You said the average American eats 17 to 21 times per day. 17 to 23 times, yeah. 23 times per day. So could you expand upon that? Like that will shock so many people. What do you mean, Don? They're eating, they're sitting down at a table 21, 23 times a day. Could you expand upon that? They actually had, they had to really tighten up because they first based this kind of concept on people self-reporting and people just did not report well because when they actually followed people around, they actually monitored them. They found out because it mean eat, eating is anytime you consume calories. People weren't counting their coffee when they got in the morning, especially these grande double cappuccino, this, that, and the other type of drinks, that's, that's a meal, right? And then they, they, they might, on their way to work, they might grab, uh, they might make their kids lunch or something, and they, they'll grab a little something from that eating. Uh, on the way to work, they might have some granola in their car, they might grab something eating. They get to work, uh, there's a you know, birthday or something, and they have a little cake or in the donut room, eating. They might have another coffee later with some cream and sugar eating. You have lunch, obviously eating. And then you might uh, be walking around the office and grab some candy out of someone's jar eating. I mean, just the things that we don't consider it might be a, a iced tea uh, with, uh, later in the day eating. It goes on and on. You can see how it can quickly add up. They literally eat or consume calories 17 to 23 times a day. 
So they're raising glucose and insulin into the body that's a meal. Potentially, absolutely. Yeah, but, so even even if it's healthy, like kombucha or um, some carrot sticks and peanut butter or something like that, that they, can, they might think it's healthy, it's a meal. And that's what's 17 to 23 times a day. And they're, when they're doing that, they're raising insulin. So they're in this constant fed state, right? So when they're in a constant fed state, what happens in that case? What's happening when somebody has insulin up all the time? Yeah, you know, there's different concepts for these states. One, like you said, is a fed state. Fed state and the opposite of fed state is a lean state. All right, they're different. You know, fed and lean, you could also call this a growth state, and this is a repair state. They're different, and they're actually opposing, like on a teeter-totter. When one goes up, the other goes down. The hormones for fed state, number one, is insulin. And number two is mTOR, which not the focus today. It's a whole other topic, but that, that has to do with protein regulation for energy. All right? So that's, that's the deal. Every time you drive this state, it goes up, and then this state goes down. And that's the main thing. If you're constantly in a fed growth state, you're not in a lean repair state. And this is where all the healing and the repair of our body that makes it stronger, increases the muscle, all that kind of stuff happens. And so you're just forcing that down. You're in that fed state constantly. It's just over signaled. So a lot of people don't eat too much. They eat too often because every time they eat, but they're pumping this mechanism here and they're suppressing this one. So you could be in a low-calorie model and eating eight times a day and still be stuck in this as much as someone who's eating 5,000 calories on the other end of the spectrum. Mm, Yeah, that's an important note right there, listeners. Okay, now what role does fasting have? You mentioned how you fast and you had these lesions come off of your body. What do you think happened there? And what role does fasting have in your programs and what you do with yourself and your family and the people you work with? Yeah, well... I didn't know then. I was kind of just doing what I thought at the time I was younger. I didn't have the, the background I do now. I didn't have the, the research in it. And I noticed the, the benefit and it made sense, but that was about it. Now we know a lot more. And I've done fast. I, I did a, like you mentioned, a 30 day fast. And on that fast, I had a skin tag fall off. Uh, I've had another mole fall off at, at, with different fasting, things like that. And that's very common with people that go through our programs and, and fast. So, what's going on when you fast? You shift that balance. You go, you're out of the fed state. You're out of the growth state. You drop that down, and the teeter-totter on the other side has to go up. So now you're in the lean state, and you're in the repair state. Part of that repair state is the breaking down and recycling of damaged tissue, cells, and mechanisms within our body. It starts to break stuff down. Things that aren't working well will die. The cells that aren't working well or damaged, they will die, whereas in the fed state, they won't because that's turned off. You can't, you can't repair. It's t- called autophagy, right? It's called autophagy. And it's turned off when you're in the fed state. And so you just don't, you don't get the recycling. So things build up. Just think in your house. If you, if you, if you're garbage in your house, can't, you don't take it out and get rid of it. It accumulates. Next thing you know, it's in your kitchen. Then well, you got to do something. You stick it in a closet and then, you know, where am I going to put it? I'll put it in the living room. I'll put it in. You got, it starts building up all over and eventually everything stinks and it's putrid and it's rots. Same thing in our body. We need to take the garbage out. We need to recycle. You know, it's energy and sustainability on the global level. It's energy and sustainability on the cellular human level as well. We have to manage that. And so by staying, getting into the lean repair state, you're recycling. When those cells die, they break them up and reuse their parts. Different mechanisms, which are protein-based, inside the cells die, you reuse them. They, they fold them, they reuse them, or they get rid of them, or they turn them into sugar, and they use it for energy. That's why you don't die when you fall asleep in the sleep for eight to 10 hours, because your body's making energy at will. That's why when I fasted for 30 days, I didn't die. I, I Opposite, I felt alive, because the body knows how to, to maintain itself, and it uses the recycling. That's why, you know, in an ideal world, we compost and recycle most of our junk. We don't have a lot of residue. We don't have these huge landfills, right? Same thing in the body. Uh, if you compost and recycle your cells that you don't need, you won't create a, a landfill within your body called disease, and, and that's the concept. Yeah, I love that. That's a great analogy. So you did a 30-day fast. And for, for the listeners out there, they're probably, if they're not familiar with fasting, they're probably thinking, 
I, I didn't even know that was possible. When I give lectures, I ask them, what do you think is the world record for the longest fast? And people are giving me answers like four days, seven days. They don't realize it's even much more than 30 days. You did 30 days and that's pretty long time to go without food. And I know part of it was partial, correct? And I, I would love to hear more about it and also any mistakes you made during that fast. Yeah. You know, the longest fast, like you said, 382 days. Yeah. 382 days. But that's a whole nother topic. Yeah. And, and he was much healthier for it. No, the 30, 30 day fast didn't start off as a 30 day fast. It started off as a three day fast and I was feeling pretty good. So I was like, all right, I'll roll it into five days. And then I was like, okay, and I'll roll it into seven days. I, at the time I did it, I was posting on Facebook. I'm on day three of my three day fast. And then it was like, I'm on day five of my five day fast. And at that point I'm like, I'm on day six of my five day fast. You know, and I started counting back kind of off like that. I'm on day seven and it felt good. You know, I've done several prior to that several 12 day fast was the longest I've done before. And so I got up to 12. I'm like, Hmm, I've never been further than this. Let's go 15. And then 15 was cool. Let's go 20. Then I got to 23. And I was at a, a seminar, a doctor's seminar, speaking in a seminar, and so was Dr. Pampa. And he was on stage, and he's like, Don's here, and he's got 23 days fasting, and uh, he's going for 30, right, Don? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I guess so. I am now, right? And so I went to 30, and because it didn't start off as, a, as an effort to go 30 days, in the beginning, I, was, I used coffee, and then eventually about now I know after about five or seven days, I can't even stand the smell of coffee. I don't want it anywhere near me when I'm fasting, which is strange because I drink it normally. And then, uh, so I was switched to broth and this is just usually once or twice a day. I use the broth when I make meal for my family and I sit down and I have a broth in a bowl and it, you know, we could talk and it was social, not them staring at me, not eating and me staring at them eating. Right. And so I take the broth, but eventually after about 10, 12 days, Forget broth. You know, I can't even look at that. Don't cook. I got real sensitive to that. And then eventually it just went to water at that point. And uh, I was sometimes we do some light teas and things like that, but it just didn't need anything. Didn't want anything. Even when I stopped at 30 days, I only broke it because I, my wife threw me a fast breaking party. Otherwise, you know, if it was just me, I could, I could have went. I had no problem. There was no urges. There was no hunger. There was no issue. As far as that goes, I could have kept going. I don't know for how long. Now, that all said, I, you know, I lost like 20 pounds or something like that. You know, I can fluctuate weight. I'm 6'4". I can fluctuate pr pretty well. And uh, I got pretty lean there, which is, was fine. F after about 14 days, though, uh, you start to see some muscle wasting because I didn't stop exercising. And that's the other thing that freaks people out. I, was, uh, I do powerlifting, or I did at the time. I used to be a competitor. And so I was doing max lifting squats and deadlifts and while fasting after a week or 10 days of fasting. And then I would do intensity training, a CrossFit style training, not, not specifically CrossFit, but high intensity type things while I was fasting. And I think at a certain point, the body just can't keep up and eventually starts to break down the muscle. Whereas someone who wasn't doing that, I think could have went longer without muscle breakdown because my percentage did go down. I forget the numbers, but it did go down. And so you know, at the end of the fast, there was a bunch of fat loss, but there was a good amount of muscle loss. Now, when you hear that, people don't freak out. It comes back and it comes back stronger. You know, it comes back. We use fasting to get a metabolic, I mean, excuse me, an anabolic rebound. We work with athletes or anyone. We do a certain protocol that after five days when they refeed, they get anabolic. They can see it. They can feel it. Their strength goes up, all sorts of things. But I've had other athletes. I've had competitive power lifters triathletes, cyclists, long distance, like high level people do fasting and lose weight uh, and improve their numbers. They got stronger, they got faster, they had better endurance, you name it, better recovery. So, you know, don't, don't start to freak out about that just because I said I lost some muscle. If I had to do, I don't think I would do 30 days again, but I wouldn't mind doing 12 to 14 days again. And if I did, I'd only work out hard for the first five days and do something light for the rest. And there's no problem working out while you're fasting. If you're metabolically flexible, mm -hmm. if it's your first time and you're not used to it and you don't know how to weather the storm or someone's not guiding you, then uh, yeah, I wouldn't recommend it because you can get, you can get wonky and people interpret everything negative when they're fasting. People, when I get, cause in my programs, I work everyone up to a seven day fast. But I don't tell them that till after they pay for my program, because if I do, they will freak out, right? You know, because they go, oh, my God, everyone says, I can't do that. I can't even, some people can't even skip a snack and they're or a day, never mind seven days. And I've never had anyone not be able to do it. 
I've had some people choose not to. One woman was lactating and breastfeeding, and that was her choice. So we broke it up and did something different. But, you know, point is, you train it right, you can do it. Just like if I said we're all going to do a marathon this weekend, everyone would freak out. I would freak out. I'm not ready for that. But I said, hey, in six months, we'll do one. Now it's a whole different story. You can train. You can prepare. You'll be in a different place. Because the goal of fasting is not to get through it, to white knuckle through it and get the T-shirt that says, I did a seven-day fast. That'll hurt you. Just like going to a 10K race isn't about the t-shirt or be able to say it. Because if I just ran it tomorrow, I'd hurt myself, right? Same thing. You want the goal to be able to run a 10K or a marathon is to be able to run it, not just to run it. It's to be able to, to be in the condition, to be physically fit, to, to have the mentality, to have what you need, to be prepared to do it. Same thing with the fast. You want to be able to drop a fast anytime you want and, and not have any problems, Right? And that's possible if you do the right prep work and you do, it can take a while. That's why in my programs, we don't do that till week 13. Hmm. You know, we, have, we have at least 12 weeks that we prepare all the way up there. And then when they do it, it's not hard. They can do it. It's, it's, it's pretty great. And so, you know. Yeah, because you taught them how to become metabolically flexible. And you said it. That's key. It's like a muscle you're developing, a fasting muscle. You wouldn't hop off a couch and run a marathon just to get the shirt. You'd feel like crap. Same thing with the fast. You wouldn't go from being a, sh- a pure sugar burner to going into a long fast because you'd feel like crap. You wouldn't do it just to say you did it. You want to do it to have the ability to do it. I love that. And it's, and it's so true. And I see it all the time as well. And that's, that's kind of how I teach it. It's, I, I have them become metabolically flexible. I use the keto diet to do that, getting rid of the snacks. And speaking of the keto diet, how much of an impact has eating a high healthy fat, low carb diet been for your patients, especially the ones who have diabetes? Yeah, I don't force anyone to use any model of eating. I have some Indian nationals who are vegetarian, who it's really hard for them to go keto. And so we don't have to, they still get the benefits. I have people who do paleo who don't want to jump off that, you know, you name it, they have it. That's okay. A lot of people end up going keto anyway, because just the way it ebbs and flows and brings them there. And then some people say, hey, I want to go keto and that's fine. And so it's had a huge impact. Even people just shifting their fat a little bit and stopping snacking and doing some basic stuff in our studies with the populations, they would lose 10 to 60 pounds in eight to 12 weeks just by doing that. You know, and these are salt of the earth people. I had one woman who I was coaching in, in the program and she's like, doc, don't worry, I'm healthy. She's probably 300 pounds, but she's like, I'm healthy. I eat vegetables and juice every morning for breakfast to start my day right. Mm. And I'm like, that's great. Oh, Mary, I don't remember her name. Tell me, what are these vegetables and juice? What's the recipe? Tell me what it is. Yeah, when I get to work, I go to the vending machine, I get a bag of Funyuns, and I get a Mountain Dew. And that was her reality. She was not joking. That was her Funyuns were the vegetables, and the Mountain Dew was the juice. So if we can get someone who's at that basis to make minor shifts, lose the weight, improve the cholesterol, improve the blood sugar, improve the triglycerides, improve the waist ratio, lose some weight, then someone who's willing to go keto has no excuse. They can, they can rock this thing, but it can take a while. That has to do with that organ function, liver or pancreas fat. I had one woman who came in who started with me. She showed me her MRI or CAT scan, one of these studies, and her liver was two and a half times normal size. Enormous. I'm like, that's a medical emergency. I'm the wrong person for this. And she's like, listen, I've been there. I've done everything. If you can't help me, I'm done for. So I was like, all right, well, as long as you know, let's start. And we started working. She did everything I said. Month one, no change. Month two, no change. She She was heavy. She didn't lose any weight. Month three, no change. It wasn't until month five and a half that suddenly something shifted. And at the beginning of when she started seeing that change, she went in to do another test and her liver was down to normal. And from that point on, she, she dropped in that first month of change, something like 30 pounds. And then she kept getting better. That liver had to shrink, shrink, lose the fat, 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 then start functioning well. Had to take care of itself first because the liver burns our body fat. And then once it was healthy again, then it could process the body fat and it took off. So people say, hey, I'm doing everything right. I'm exercising, I'm keto, I'm fasting, but nothing's changing or I'm not losing the weight. That's what I think is going on. Those organs aren't ready and you have to clear them out, get them healthy and then stick to the plan. That's why I do six month plans or, or more, nothing less. Once it's shifted, 
then the, they can take off and go from there. And that can take a long time. And there's a lot of factors. There's everything from the liver fat and the, and the pancreas fat to toxicity. They could be, have a lot of toxins, heavy metal and otherwise. And so there's other factors. But if you're doing all the right things and you're not seeing the result you want, it's okay because your body's it's still working. It's just working on something other than that you want it to work on. Mm. You know? yeah, that's you a know? good point. It's great awareness right there. And uh, that's really helpful for, for myself as well. I, I want to finish on two things. Number one, you've said that your skin produces hormones. I'd love for you to talk about that. Oh, the skin is a metabolic organ. It's an endocrine organ. It is, there's great papers out on that and great research on the skin as an endocrine organ. It's super fascinating. I did a talk at a skin symposium on this uh, subject and the research on it just blew me away. The skin has its own hormonal axis like the HPA axis, you know, right? Just like the hypothalamus uh, pituitary adrenal axis strong everyone talks about it the skin has its own and it communicates with the central axis back and forth the skin makes 50 percent of men's testosterone the skin not the testes the skin right and in women it makes up to, it makes up to 75 percent of her estrogen and in post-menopause it makes 100 percent and so wow. but, but yeah but we when we have hormone problems what do we want to do we want to slam we want to treat the testes and, and give them testosterone. We, and women, when there's estrogen, we want to pump them through of hormone replacement. We want to remove organs. We want to stimulate all this internal stuff when it could have, you could balance a lot of it if you just took care of your skin. It's amazing what it does. And never mind the vitamin D connection of making vitamin D, which is a hormone. It's a pro-hormone and how it is involved in the whole body and has a huge role in cancer, has a huge role in insulin resistance. Right? If, you're, if your vitamin D is down, you are insulin resistant, period. If people say, oh, how do I know if I'm insulin resistant? If you want one test, if all this other info doesn't click with you, go get your vitamin D tested. If it's low, you're insulin resistant because they work inversely. Right? They work, high insulin will slam vitamin D down. I don't care what the insulin test says. If your vitamin D is low, it, you are insulin resistant. So, and and that's, that's not just medically low. That's generally low. Medically low is 25 or less. Functionally low is we I consider well they consider forty or less. You want at least above sixty, and I want people over eighty. And we and we've never seen a top end. I, the highest I've seen was two thirteen. Wow, perfectly fine, no toxicity, very healthy. You know, so you know, there's really no no top end that we know of. Yeah, that was actually my next question. That you answered it for me. You flowed right into it. So if they have an inverted relationship. If insulin is high, vitamin D is down. If the person didn't change anything with getting more sun or taking vitamin D, but they fixed their insulin resistance and they brought their insulin low, would their vitamin D go up? Yes. Yes. Okay. That's powerful. We see it all the time. You know, you go up here in the Pacific Northwest, we don't have a lot of sun, but we have a lot of health conscious people and they're slamming vitamin D. They're taking 10,000, 15,000 IUs a day. And they've been doing it for months or years, yet their vitamin D levels low. It's not just about taking it. We have people in Florida, for example, who get tons, or Mexico, they get tons of sunlight all day, and yet their vitamin D level is low. Why? In both cases, insulin is high, and it's, it's, it's holding that vitamin D down. So it's got to, just holding it down. I've seen that. I've been in Miami, so I see that all the time. Not all the time. I've seen it before with the, vit with the vitamin D being low, even though they're getting sun, but they have insulin resistance. So I could attest to that. All right, Dr. Don, I have three final questions for you. All right. uh, the first one is, what's the most exciting project you're working on right now? That's a good question. What's the most exciting project right now? Well, it's, it's all about the same stuff. I'm, I'm working on a 12-hour well, I've, I have a 12-hour continuing education for medical, medical continuing education course on all of this, going from risk all the way through cancer and, and how, to, how to implement it. Why? That, that coming alive and getting out there more is really exciting. We want to create a certification around that. I'm working with health centers of the future. We want to create an insulin resistance program, a true metabolic reset that's been on the board for about a year. I'm kind of slow and behind on that, but working on that. So that, that'd be another one. And then just creating a, a group model where people can do something more online. I work with people one-on-one -on -one and just be able to get more information out. I'm, I'm rebranding re my website. Uh, that's going to be exciting. Get some more centralized information. Cause right now, because of my relationship with the big companies and population health, I couldn't have a lot of 
public facing sales or anything else. And so now that I can, I'm, I'm, re- I'm starting over. And so that's, that would be it. The, tw- the certification 12 hour course, the true metabolic, metabolic reset with health centers of the future. And then the, the rebranding of, of my site. What's your website? Well, right now it's yourwellnesstribe.com, and but that might change where it's, it's in a holding pattern right now. So uh, best way to find information, I mean, is just go, go to Facebook. Go to Don Klum on Facebook. I have a personal page you can follow or my business page that you can like. If you can follow the personal, I think right now that's getting more exposure, but you can do both, either one, and you can message me there. You can do all sorts of stuff there. I have over, I don't know, 400-some Facebook posts on the, these subjects. I have videos there. I have YouTube videos that are on all of these subjects. So, and it's all free. It's all open right now. And if you, you know, time permitted, you can ask questions and I'll do my best to answer them. Yeah. And I want to, I want to piggyback off of that because I'm, I'm Facebook friends with you and I'm, I'm, I'm also following your business page and your posts are amazing. You, you go into detail, long form content on what you're studying, what you're researching, what it's working for you. And you give it to us and I'm so grateful for that because I get to read that. And if you're somebody who doesn't want to spend all that time studying these books, studying research, and maybe you don't have the credentials to do some of the things Don is doing, you could just follow him on Facebook. And he is curating all this information so brilliantly so as well. I love what you're doing. So definitely give Don Klum a follow on Facebook and also um, his website, yourwellnesstribe.com. Now, before we finish this up, I've had a lot of fun here, by the way. What is your definition of perfect health? I don't think there is perfect health. I think there's, you know, optimal. It's, it's, it's a journey. We all go through it. I, I found myself, I got metabolic syndrome twice. You know, I have my own issues that I deal with from a life of, you know, didn't always know this stuff, right? You know, so I think perfect health, the perfect health is someone who's proactive, and someone who is constantly working to improve. Because if you're not proactively improving your health, you will passively lose it. That's just the reality of the, of the world we live in. So perfect health is being proactive, having a plan, having this, that strategy, and sticking to it. And if you can, have someone help you. Have a coach, have a mediator, follow someone, and just you know stick to it. You know, Stick to it. Give yourself some time and, and run with it. So th- that's what I would say. I love it. Yeah. Perfect. Your definition is you're constantly growing and getting better. And I think that's brilliant. So Don, I want to acknowledge you, my friend, because uh, I've learned a lot from you, not just on this podcast, but throughout the weeks, I've been really studying you deeply and even throughout the years. And you've been really a huge inspiration for me personally, because I'm really passionate about diabetes. I'm passionate about insulin resistance. The information you share would have saved my father's life if I would have had it. And you're taking a lot of these arrows, not just for me, but for so many people. And what you've done from being that high school student who had no interest in being a chiropractor, no interest in doing what you're doing to doing what you're actually doing. And it's just scratching the surface of what you're creating. Now that program with health centers of the future, which I'm going to be a part of, I'm just so grateful to know somebody like you and connect with somebody like you. And you're so gracious with the information that you provide. You don't have to do the things that you're doing. You do it because you want to make a difference. And I, I want to acknowledge you for that and say thank you for everything that you're doing. And I hope everybody takes advantage of what you're saying here and what you're offering with the information you provide. So thank you for your interview and thank you for being who you are, brother. Well, Dr. Ben, thank you. That, that's, you're very kind with your words and your sentiment. It's a journey. I'm glad to be on the same journey as you are. I've been watching a lot of your videos now. I've been liking stuff, so I get it a lot on my feed. I hope your, your followers are taking advantage of the content you're putting out. I think it's fantastic. And I even comment on a couple when I can here and there. Uh, and so it's just, I think, you know, it's what we're doing together that's going to make the impact. And I'm glad to, I'm glad to be there with you. Yeah, I'm grateful to be on this fight together, brother. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, sir. Well, that was an awesome conversation. I hope you enjoyed it, Keto Campers. Check out Dr. Klum. Check out the resources, the show notes of this podcast episode. We have one of the best show notes in the game of podcasts. Honestly, we have a full-time person who does all the show notes. So take advantage of that. Look at the resources. We put links. We put the timestamps. Share it with a friend. Share this podcast with a friend for sure, especially if you know somebody struggling to lose weight, if you know somebody who has type 2 diabetes. This information is the exact information they need to get their life back. If you haven't rated and reviewed the Keto Camp podcast, 
and you found value in the Keto Camp podcast, please leave the show an honest review on iTunes. It would help out so much. I also want to tell you to get my Keto Kickstart Guide. If you haven't gotten that, it's a 12-page ebook. It's free, and you could learn how to burn fat instead of sugar. Go to www.ketokickstartguide.com to claim that for free. If you haven't subscribed to my YouTube channel, the Keto Camp YouTube channel, you can do so by going to youtube.com slash keto camp. Thank you so much for spending part of your day with me. Keep in mind, we have brand new episodes, three of them coming out every single week. So stay tuned for a lot of great information on the Keto Camp podcast. Be great, be grateful, and I'll see you and you'll hear me on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.